going to stick a knight here. He takes it off. He takes the bishop. So he took it off this bishop. And he's threatening this pawn. I don't think he took this right away. I guess he played here first. And now he took the bishop. Bobby Fischer is one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest chess player in the world. And now he took the rook. Bobby Fischer, United States. World title contender. Now uh, Black surprised him with this one. Bobby Fischer is a strange man. People think that there's something wrong with the man. And then the king moves, takes the queen. The great Bobby Fischer is here tonight. Like a child, not a champion. His social life is a vacuum. The most arrogant man you're ever likely to meet. He takes back, he gets checked. Looking for Bobby Fischer. Whatever happened to Bobby Fischer? Reclusive. Threatening this pawn, and it's a dead lost game. Bobby Fischer is searching for asylum. Really Fischer against the world. And here, White resigned. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time dealing. The Polish Hello, welcome to the show. I am Nick, and I'm joined by Adam and Hans this evening. Hey. Hey, guys. And today we're going to do a somewhat brief and unconventional show. We're going to discuss the figure of the late Robert Fisher, the former Grandmaster chess champion, and for a time, the the world champion. Uh, He obviously became treated to a lot of smears and contempt from the you know, New York media establishment and uh, underwent a lot of persecution in his later years, eventually settling and dying in Iceland, which is, of course, where he played the probably the most famous chess game of all time back in 1972 against Boris Spassky. So what do, you, uh, what do you guys think of when uh, you think of... Uh, Robert Fisher. Well, it was a few years ago that I kind of became aware of him. And I think the first uh, first thing I did was sort of watch some of his old interviews he did on the Dick Cavett show. And what was striking to me right off the bat was, and I knew, you know, his reputation. And I think I'd actually seen searching for Bobby Fisher before I'd ever seen the, this interview of the actual chess player. Um, so that, that movie was you know, in the 90s and it was about sort of a, young child uh, chess prodigy that was kind of trying to follow in the footsteps of Bobby Fischer. But I knew that he was sort of a 70s phenomenon, but 
but I didn't know much about him. And so when I saw him actually interviewed, I mean, he's a very striking, physically uh, fit guy uh, in that interview. And I, I was not expecting that. I was expecting, obviously, what your stereotypical chess player looks like, which is kind of this meek, glasses-wearing type that, uh, you know, is not very physically imposing. And um, Bobby was uh, very funny, uh, somewhat charismatic, if eccentric. And, uh, you know, he looked like he could be almost... Uh, like a basketball player or something. So it, it was an interesting interview. And that was sort of where I first became aware of him. And, and then obviously his later in life, uh, escapades with the law and his theories about, uh, the chosen people, which is probably the most, uh, pertinent to some of us, some of the people listening today, but, uh, it's, um, it, it colors his sort of reputation in a lot of circles and, gives a lot of people incentives to either love him or hate him. So he's a very interesting guy. Yeah. You know, he absolutely was furious about that film. The The film was about, uh, it was written by the father. I, I forget the, it's Waitskin. Uh, I think Joel, I forget which was the father and which was the son, but the original title that they were going for with the movie, I think was something like improbable moves. Hmm. And, this was a common theme for for Bobby post 1972 is people trying to use his name uh, to make money and to promote their various agendas and he later made it very difficult for them to do this which I think was actually part of the, the his intentions because he, you have to keep in mind about Bobby Fisher's he grew up very very poor in Brooklyn. Um, well, earlier than that, I think he and his mother and sister lived all, all around the Western United States, but he started playing chess. I think he was about six years old. He got a little chess board from a candy store and he would play with his sister who eventually got bored of it. And his mother was a very interesting character. She was of course a Jew and she had been all around the world, uh, had was very politically involved in you know, radical left-wing Bolshevik politics. And this, of course, attracted the attention of the FBI. And so from an early age, she, they, had, uh, they had, you know, guys in, in glasses and uh, suits uh, outside the apartment or... She had coached him that if if he was ever to be interrogated, that he was to say that he had he had nothing to say to them. Um, so this is something that you'll see come up in general when people are trying to to smear him uh, and psychologize his views about international politics and uh, the United States and uh, world Jewry, is that he's paranoid and the thing about the thing to understand about paranoia in general is the uh, I think it's the Thomas Pynchon and somewhere in Gravity's Rainbow it's the, the if they can get you for asking the wrong questions they don't have to worry about the answers and this is a kid I mean 180 IQ and then as a as a young man this is somebody who got involved in the height of Cold War politics so our and prior to that as I had mentioned there was already some degree of intrigue and espionage going on at his home. There's nothing definitive to prove that she was, in fact, a active agent of, of the Kremlin. Uh, 
maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, but nonetheless, she was operating on some level in an ideological capacity to these ends. I mean, she was involved in the political circles and general subversion and rabble rousing that these people get up to. So he was, he's always been exposed to intrigue and as a very sensitive and brilliant mind, I mean, he was acutely aware of these things going on around him. I mean, he was the Russian and the Russians at the, at the time of the game, you had, of course, KGB and CIA floating around everywhere. I mean, this was par for the course. So it's nothing altogether unusual for him to be paranoid. And after that, uh, he, after he defeated Spassky, he made serious enemies with the USSR. And he had very real enemies. And then when he went on later to make his pronouncements against the United States government and uh, jury, he made more enemies, enemies of the Zionist state, enemies in the United States government, enemies all over the world. So he, to say he was paranoid and as this is an un- irrational thing or something is, I mean, ultimately absurd because he had every reason to be paranoid because he had very powerful enemies. It's like saying Hillary Clinton is paranoid or, you know, any, take any power elite figure who surrounds themselves day and night with armed guards and they drive around in bulletproof automobiles. I mean, is this irrational paranoia? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the, the arrest warrant that was issued for him for basically playing a chess game <laughs> is, is kind of on the face of it, like raises questions as to, Okay, there, there's something more serious going on here. Um, and we can oh, probably absolutely. get into that maybe a little bit later, though. We should, before we get into kind of the controversy in his later life, maybe we should talk a little bit about his his chess playing and some of the the games that he did, and obviously the Spassky match. Uh, I think yeah, that could be interesting. Well, I'll skip over some of the great arcana of chess. I mean, it is a very peculiar little world. Um, he was. There'll be a lot of comparisons you'll see if you read literature about him. Uh, he he liked to compare himself to uh, Paul Morphy, who was considered by many to be who, who really should have been the first world champion. And on paper, is beaten out by the Jew uh, Wilhelm Steinitz. Uh, it was Morphy. He also died relatively young. I think he was in his late forties, but he was he was considered to be probably one of uh, the best of, of at least at the very least of the 19th century best American uh, but he similar to uh, Fisher's refusal to participate against Kaparov uh, Morphy refused to play against Steinitz and uh, there's a lot of parallels to their lives they were both eccentric people as you can imagine from people who have you know, over 150 IQs. So it, he, uh, he modeled himself largely after Morphy, but his, his teachers, he had, his main, main teacher was a man named Collins. Though he denied to a large extent Collins's influence on him. Uh, some would say somewhat arrogantly. I, I don't really have an opinion on this, but, uh, prior to the the Spassky game, he started to make a name for himself because he played at one point what was called the 
the game. I mean, this the Spassky match in 72 was considered to be the match of the century. But he had played what was called the game of the century, involved the queen sacrifice. I think he was around 14 at the time. Uh, he was playing, I believe it was at the Manhattan Chess Club. And he started to make a big name for himself. Uh, he was, I believe, the youngest ever admitted member to the Manhattan Chess Club. And the scene was, of course, very Jewish. This is something he could it, it contributed to. I mean, he had to deal a lot with communist Jews and stuff and, and around his mother's social scene. But he also had to deal with uh, the American Jewish scene was, or sorry, the American chess scene was very Jewish. And you might assume or something that I could imagine some people trying to make the argument that like the Jews are the greatest chess players. This is hardly true. Um, There's about six Jews uh, who were the who were world champions. I'm looking at probably nine or ten uh, non-Jews. Yeah, but counting for their insignificant quantity or proportion of the population, that that is an overrepresentation. So it, it, I think it's a fair statement to say that the Jews are quite good at chess. Yeah, there's some interesting sort of uh, racial esoteric about this too, because you had the one of the grandmasters and world champions in the 20s, Alekhine, who uh, he actually wrote a bunch of he was he was Russian, but uh, you know Aryan, and he got caught up in the events in the early century and actually started writing some material uh, for the Third Reich about Aryan and Jewish differences in chess playing. Uh, so th- there is a there is a lot of what what did he come up with? I'm actually curious about this now. Did, did... Uh, well, the, the the Jews would play an overly defensive strategy. Interesting. Um, whereas uh, traditional Aryan chess playing would be much more aggressive and bold and open. He met a tragic fate of his own uh, and his younger brother was like murdered by the, by the Bolsheviks. And uh, you also have, I mean, chess brings out a lot of these, it brings out racial national rivalries and in the context of the cold war, the Russian, the USSR chess players, they have the full support of the state, right? They had, you know, they, they would have like whole teams behind them of, you know, various, usually you'd have one second, but you could have, the Russians tended to have multiple seconds. And so what they would do is they would catalog what the other players are doing, give information back. They would have, you know, physical trainers, uh, psychologists, et cetera. Behind yeah. And them. F- Fisher actually mentioned that in one of his interviews that the Soviets have this innate, innate advantage because the government effectively pays for the the living uh, requirements for people to do exclusively chess, which Americans typically cannot do because it doesn't pay very well in America, especially before he made it as famous as it did after uh, the newspapers started following Bobby Fischer. But um, it, it to this day, I mean, you don't really make money playing the game. But the reason the communists, especially in Russia, were supportive of it was it was a identified as sort of a, a prestige 
uh, or an intellectual, uh, in particular, uh, prestige point that the communist system was outperforming the rest, and so they made yes, and a perfect priority. application for scientific Marxism, right? Yeah, it, you have the same dynamic in uh, hockey. I mean, up till the 1970s, yes. the U.S. routinely got its ass kicked by the Soviets in hockey to the point where. <clears throat> The Soviets came and played a game in Madison Square Garden against a U.S. All-Stars team, um, I think the year before the 72 Winter Olympics, and basically crushed them in front of the, you know, on home turf uh, in front of the whole world, and it was just a total disaster. Um, I mean, the movie, the film Miracle uh, sort of encapsulates this, where the Americans actually take the Soviet system seriously and decide, okay, we're going to do... A Soviet-style system uh, in American hockey, and then they won. They won. Yeah, that, on basically, they, they won basically that year. The Legend of Herb Brooks. You know, they they won because uh, U.S. Olympic coach team uh, came in and said, "We're going to emulate the Canadians and the Soviets in terms of their their strategy of we're not going to get all stars. We're going to get college kids who mostly know each other and have played together for years." Um, which is a distinct advantage the Soviet and Canadian teams had, and most actual Northern European teams had. And there's going to be no ego trips. You're going to and nightly, and this is their job. They don't, you know, they don't go to school. They don't do anything. They just drill all day, and they won. You know, oh. Fisher had had a point that uh, Americans never really took, or would every now and then take um, sports seriously, especially during the Cold War. And they would rarely take them seriously until there was a, like a series of major public defeats that really, you know, questioned the United States' ability to, to compete at all. Um, often because America had such like a robust internal um, sports and recreational network that it was often weird to see Americans do so poorly abroad. Um, and it was often really just be, it was a lack of training and it was egotism. You see a lot of that today in Asia in the context of the game of Go, where the Japanese had traditionally dominated the game, the Chinese have been putting the entire machinery of the state behind, you know, plucking the brighter children from age, you know, two or whatever, and putting them into like state Go camps for the next 10 years or so. They really honed it to the point where I think the peak of, like, if they don't get them early, the I mean, it, it's just gotten insane. Yeah, there was almost like a, in, in some countries, there was like a eugenics program practically. I mean, it became a, a family tradition. So in the Soviet Union, uh, in Canada, in Finland, in Sweden, this is more again in the context of hockey. But, uh, you know, they would your family's family would always be involved in playing hockey or playing whatever sport it was or whatever profession you were involved in. Um, that was cultivated over time. Whereas I think Bobby Fischer basically had no idea what chess was until he picked it up as a kid. His parents weren't really into it. No one around him growing up was really into it. He just sort of accidentally stumbled upon it and made an effort, which is sort of the, the general history of most American sports legends is that typically they're not trained that well or they're not even sort of cultivated from from an early age a lot of them are just sort of accidental where they took it up as an interest and put in a lot of effort and tried to to work together 
Well, he did okay. really work really hard on it, but I think obviously his talent was innate. And I think that's perhaps what you're getting at is that no matter how many, uh, you know, slave chess labor camps that you're put into, <laughs> if you're not good at it, you're not good at it. Or if you're not smart, I mean, he's, he was clearly just smarter than all these guys he was playing against. All of these, you know, Russians and Armenians that the Soviet Union was training to throw against him were just not as smart. It was, it was really simple. And he loved the game. And he loved that, the game. That, that's also yeah. something very important. Uh, yeah, it took him quite a while to find anyone serious to play against. Um, I mean, there are he, some pretty cool pictures of him playing like 15 simultaneous games and him just like looking like some kid down the street and there's all these old dudes like frustrated as hell looking. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I don't know what that does to a kid, but I can only speculate that it really isolates you because you, you start feeling like you're surrounded by kind of like Oompa Loompas. And I think that's why he became, you know, why so exceptionally self-confident as he got older uh, to the point of arrogance uh, that many, many saw in him. Yeah, well, he was the best, and he knew it, and he proved it. So, uh, you know, there's that. <laughs> but, I mean, prior to the 72 game, he had, in the, like, early 1960s, he had he had done, a, I think, won 20 at the tournament, American tournament. He had won 20 games or so without a loss, which is just unheard of. And these were, these were serious masters that he was playing against. Just yeah, and he, he has like really insane um, sort of win ratios against a lot of these grandmasters that he played with against over the years. I mean, uh, Rashevsky nine to four, Petrosian eight to four, Taimanov seven to zero, Saidi six to zero, Sherwin seven to zero, Bisguire thirteen to one, Larson ten to two. Like these were all these are all over the course of decades, um, mostly when he was in his prime, and he completely destroyed a lot of these guys and the few uh, players that actually won against him that he would play against over the years um, I think particularly like Karpov and um, what what was his sort of his Oh, he he never he never played uh, Kaparov Oh, no, uh, uh, Spassky, sorry Yeah, Are we talking about Kasparov or Karpov or Kaparov? These Russian names are confusing There was a man named, hold on Karpov was the, Karpov was the man who he refused to play to defend his world championship title following his victory against Spassky. Right. And Anatoly so, Karpov was the Yeah, and so it was it was given to him in I think seventy five by default. Because well, Fisher Fisher refused to play this Russian. Well, yes. However, according to Fisher, you know, so this is this gets into the kind of the debate about it. Uh, some would look at that and, and claim that he was afraid of losing or something like this. Uh, what Fisher would say was that he presented terms, and this is something he did a lot, which is the reason that he showed up late in uh, Iceland in 72, is because he presented terms, and if those terms were met, he would play. And as to that match, the terms, according to him, Karpov refused to accept these terms, and that, so it was, in fact, Karpov who refused. I, I don't think it was up to him, though. It was a, I thought it was a chess tournament decision. Uh, yeah, but you can make, if both players accept the terms, you can make it work. I mean, Spotsky, for instance, did, was willing to play, play along by how Fisher wanted to do things. And I should add that many of the demands that Fisher made over, uh, especially in 72, 
uh, have been accepted as uh, standard operating procedure now. Uh, for example, in the after the second, he didn't show up for the second match. He lost the first match and did not uh, game, I should say, and did not show up for the second game. And afterwards, he had demanded that they play in like the rec room or something, where they they no longer had the audience present and the cameras were made to be very discreet. Uh, for example, uh, the great novelist Vladimir Nabokov, uh, who himself was a big chess enthusiast, he composed chess problems. Uh, he thought this was perfectly reasonable because um, how how are others to how are you know the mere masses to judge the conditions in which a, a master would need to focus on something like this that they have no real understanding of. So it was portrayed as eccentricity, but in many ways it was perfectly reasonable. And the the main concern you mentioned, the we were talking about the machinery of the state behind Soviet players. And I said earlier that he grew up very poor. Money was a big issue too. And he, I think you could interpret a lot of what he was doing with stalling and not, not showing up to Iceland uh, as a negotiating tactic. He wanted more money and he got it. Yeah. I mean, he was, um, he was basically centering the entire tournament around his, his desires and, I don't think most chess players could get away with that. I mean, I'm pretty sure no no other chess player could really do that. But he was so phenomenal that people were willing to make those concessions. And uh, there was, I think, a British millionaire who put up the uh, the extra money to make it happen. But, yeah, and, and later a similar thing happened in the '92 match, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, they had private. There are there are wealthy patrons of the world of chess who want to see things like this happen. But there was also. I mean, this was a big deal. I mean, you had uh, Henry Kissinger calling him uh, to, to goad him to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's Cold War politics right there. I mean, it's it's about national pride at that point. That was uh, Soviet Union versus America. Yeah. Yeah, and he he definitely had a lot of animosity for the for the USSR. Uh, he had gone there in the fifties, and he felt he wasn't treated with the respect that he's deserved. He wasn't able to even play any of the grandmasters there. Uh, and he also believed that the Russians were colluding. What they would do is they would they would draw games, you know, so that they would they would play a couple. They would they would kind of go through the motions, and they would draw games to to load the the tournament with their people. And uh, if I understand correctly, they have changed. He wanted individual matches to prevent this, and that was something that uh, the FID eventually self-accepted could you explain that a little bit better what do you mean individual matches versus what is the other well the way that like just the structure of the tournaments to prevent that so that people do get uh, a limit so that you have to play that there's no advantage to drawing like that and you found that uh i mean spot i i found in the story of bobby fisher's life i actually found his relationships with spassky to be very touching um Spassky remained a, a friend of his uh, till, his, till his dying days. And Spassky himself has sort of a, a colorful relationship to the USSR and to Jewish power as well. Uh, he, of course, had ended up leaving the USSR, but after the fall, he uh, 
began to to see things changing. He because he's a, he he's a Orthodox Russian Orthodox Christian and a, and a Russian nationalist. He also signed a signed on. He apparently he claimed later that he didn't really know what he was signing, but he had signed on to some kind of letter demanding the removal of Jewish organizations from Russia. <laughs> What <laughs> when did he sign that in in the USSR time? Two thousands. Okay, later. All right. Yeah, under Putin, which is direct opposite of uh, the Jew and probable CIA asset Gary Kasparov. Who... Yeah, Kasparov, I do not trust at all. I mean, he's he was uh, getting a lot of press. I think back t- uh, probably about ten years ago or so. I think he might have tried to run for president at one point, uh, but he he's was a, a huge Putin critic. Yeah, he's awful. I mean, he—he's first of all, he's basically like uh, an anti-Russian nationalist because he's not Russian, and he has severe issues um, with any sort of, um, I think, Russian revanchism because of I think his, his sort of ethnic disposition, which is that of being on the receiving end of lots of um, anti-ethnic separatist. Uh, moves made by the Soviets after, you know, during and after Stalin, when Stalin really reformed the Soviet Union into a very Russian-centric empire. You know, lots of these uh, weird non-ethnic, uh, or, I'm sorry, non-Russian ethnics got very involved in, in sort of internal politicking and are still around in some ways. You know, Kasparov, I think, is at this point is like some kind of shell for the Washington Post. I'm not even really sure what he does all day. Except try and foment revolution in southern Russia. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, I, I and, saw an ad for him teaching chess when I was uh, researching this show uh, on YouTube. So he's running uh, like digital chess programs uh, in this. Yeah, time, he mentored to. also this. The, I forget his name. It's half. Um, he's a Hapa, Japanese American Hapa, who's a grandmaster who he mentored. Not as good as Magnus Carlsen, though. Uh, but his, by the way, his real name is Weinstein. <laughs> so. Wait, 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 wait. Who, who's real real name? Kasparov. Oh, I thought you meant Carlson. I'm like, oh god. Oh no, 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 no. I, I, I will admit though, I trolled um, Carlson on Twitter because he posted a picture of him and George Soros playing chess, and I put a picture of uh, Bobby Fischer up, and I said, soon, we'll see what happens to his. Education. This is an old photo, actually, um, of them playing. It was about six years ago. So, yeah, and Kasparov was taught by uh, Bodvinik, who was grandmaster and world champion, as well as uh, inveterate Bolshevik. So there's that. <laughs> but as for the seventy-two game and the relationship. Uh, between Spassky and Fisher, I, I thought it was charming. After he was unjustly persecuted, uh, he in 2004, Spassky wrote to uh, President Bush and said, uh, Bobby is a tragic personality. He is an honest and good-natured man, absolutely not social. He is not adaptable to everyone's standards of life. He has a very high sense of justice and is unwilling to compromise as well as with his own conscience, as with surrounding people. He is a person who is doing almost everything against himself. I would not like to defend or justify Bobby Fischer. He is what he is. I am asking for only one thing, for mercy and charity. If for some reason it is impossible, 
I would like to ask you the following. Please correct the mistake of President uh, Francois Mitterrand in 1992. Bobby and myself committed the same crime, put sanctions against me also, arrest me, and put me in the same cell with Bobby Fischer and give us a chess set. That's a pretty, that's a pretty nice letter. Yeah, it is, uh, and he spoke also after after Fisher died. Um, he spoke very kindly of him, and I, I, their relationship, their rivalry, is it's is very honorable, and it's nice to see this. Um, he also was very grateful to Bob. I mean, Bobby did not play a, a game of chess, at least not. I mean, arguably, probably didn't play much at all, uh, even privately, since '72, and. Spotsky was always was very grateful for him to to bring him out of oblivion and and play once again and they played in in Yugoslavia in Montenegro at the same time that the uh, U.S. government <laughs> is waging war, which ostensibly was the reason for his persecution. I mean, they sent him a letter, which he subsequently spat on saying that if he continues the game, he'd be fined some you know, $200,000 and uh, have to spend 10 years in prison. And he played anyways. Uh, his reason, though, for his eventual arrest in 2004 is a bit more suspicious because he was arrested, he was detained and, and tormented in Japan for uh, violating alleged immigration laws because apparently the United States had revoked his passport. But despite him playing the chess game against sanctions in 92, he was issued a new passport in 97. Okay. So, uh, methinks it has more to do with what he had to say about the United States government and its relationship with Israel and Jewish power than it did for this 92 game of chess. Well, there's almost no doubt in my mind that the United States put pressure on Japan to do that for them. And it was, um, 2004, right? And so this was three years after nine 11 and Bush's first term. And I don't know if the white house was really caring so much about some obscure at this point, you know, old chess player talking on Philippine radio, but he made a very, very strong statement after the Twin Towers went down, basically saying that the United States got what it deserved and yep. uh, they had it coming, basically. Mm-hmm. Chickens come home to roost. Yeah. Yeah, you can go through. I mean, there are some real, uh, real gems as far as his quotes. Uh, He's a character. I mean, that, that that to me was what I found most interesting. I mean, chess is obviously a very intellectually demanding game, and I respect chess players. Uh, but I'll be honest, they, they don't exactly intrigue me all that much. But, you know, Bobby Fischer's charisma and personality and willingness to basically just... Uh, say what he thinks uh, is very rare in any human being, regardless of what profession they're in. And I've always found that to be the most fascinating about him uh, is that he was just an iconoclast and sort of fearless in what he was having to say. So that, that to me was most more interesting than the actual chess part. The, the part that you know, proved his intelligence, you could argue, is, is the fact that he could play chess at that level. But it is interesting to me 
as to how much transference there is from that type of IQ and brain in one skill set to any skill set. And he, he even reflected on this and basically said that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a genius chess player. I'm a genius uh, who happens to play chess. Uh, but then he says later that he's, he's trying to, you know, write, write a piece of poetry or, or a song and he just can't do it. Um, and, uh, you know, he has various excuses for this, but I mean, I've always wondered about this sort of thing and they have, uh, psych psychologists and people who have developed things like the IQ test have this, uh, G score, uh, that they also have in comparable terms to the IQ, but more for other things that they call, uh, general intelligence or it stands for general intelligence. And you're basically just doing kind of these very, shot in the dark attempts to measure somebody's abilities but really what you're just measuring is what you're testing them on there's there's a, there's no way you could test somebody on every possible thing that anybody could possibly do um and as multitudinous and complex as a chess game is with all the possible moves you can make uh the world is infinitely more complicated and it doesn't mean that because you have the mathematical ability to sort of think ahead and, and see counter moves and things like that, it doesn't necessarily mean, in my opinion, that you could understand other things as well or even well at all. Uh, so that's, I think, the, the, the crux of the debate about whether he was sane or not as he got older because his sort of rantings and ravings, uh, while many of us on this show would probably agree with a lot of what, it, what he had to say, there was also some... A, a, extreme narcissism that I think probably in anybody, no matter how intelligent they are, makes it difficult for them to realize that they're making mistakes or overlooking something and even listen to other people. And you just, you can't, you can't understand the world by just staying in your head. You have to live it. You have to see it. And you have to listen to people who have seen things that you haven't seen because there's only two eyes in your head. So yeah, I, but he did, he lived, I mean, okay, first of all, there's a big difference between eccentricity and narcissism egocentrism and actual madness but bobby fisher lived uh, much more than most people i mean he he traveled uh, all over the world for mo most of his life absolutely uh it doesn't mean though that Spoke he knows several everything. languages it doesn't no mean it that, doesn't of course it doesn't yeah. mean he knows everything i'm just saying it's this the image of him as somebody who lives entirely in his head uh, and is some kind of delusional no, paranoid i didn't say crank. entirely but i think that's part yeah of his but this is this is something however. that yeah, this is something that, that they tried to paint. Uh, there's a very bad movie, uh, Pawn Sacrifice, where Toby Maguire plays him. Uh, and they, they paint this well, they sort picture. They pitch him as like being impotent and autistic instead of just a really aggressive guy. Yeah. First of all, he doesn't. Toby Maguire doesn't have nearly the stature that Bobby Fischer did. Bobby Fischer would like eat Toby Maguire for breakfast. Yeah, correct. Just a totally different... They don't even look the same. I don't know why they cast him, as it was just a terrible idea. Um, you know, it, I actually I watched that film when it came out, and I remember being incredibly bored. And I, I went into it thinking, like, oh, you know, I've heard of Bobby Fischer. This might be interesting. And it, it's, you know, it's sort of formulaic. I don't know why you would make a formulaic movie about Bobby Fischer, or why you would make a movie about Bobby Fischer in general. Uh, especially given his his views, I'm surprised they actually got it made. Um, but generally, you know, the film follows this formula and and it, and it has the music and everything to it, especially in the moment when he beats uh, Spassky. And it, it, I don't know, you're bored 20 minutes in. <laughs> well, the funny thing <laughs> about that movie too on. is they 
they shoehorn in the uh, anti-Semite. He would be quick to say that he's not, in fact, an anti-Semite because he's not anti-Arab. He had a very non-biological Jew, of course, of or Jew, non non-biological view of of Jewry. Um, it's I won't get too far into that, but uh, at the time he was not really this. This wasn't really a relevant thing. This happened much much later. Uh, he was uh, anti anti communist and anti USSR and really and to a certain extent anti Russian. Yeah, well, he he wrote. But they like shoehorn this. that stuff in the the Jew stuff into the movie because oh, it's a movie about Bob Fisher, so it has to be there when that wasn't really present in the '72 match. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an interesting little article at Saturday Evening Post, um, and it just talks a little bit about the so, sort of Soviet collusion and Bobby Fischer. And it's like, well, there there is some truth to what he was saying. He was he was a deeply anti-Russian guy, and he he actually wrote an article and published it in Sports Illustrated uh, called The Russians Have Fixed World Chess. And he basically alleges that um, because he can understand or he can understand enough colloquial Russian, he could determine that uh, the players were speaking around him and openly analyzing his game in a way that was inconsistent with tournament rules. Correct. And, they, and, and they, they, he was absolutely right, by the way. And, and they played like all these little um, short straw games, and they played, you know, they played schemes in order to um, ensure that none of them ever became too tired or, or overworked or stressed out, and they were always at their best. Um, and some of this has actually ended up being validated, and he was vindicated for some of these allegations against the, the Soviet teams. And the allegation that they were spying on him was right. also true. And. He also alleged that just the International Federation or International Chess Federation was um, in part or mostly a Russian ethnic or just Russian dominated institution that because um, because the Russians had up to up to the point where he beat Spassky uh, had a 24 year continuous championship. They had built up over time uh, a, a presence, a noticeable presence within the International Chess Federation and were augmenting rules or creating um, situations that were more conducive to the Russian chess style. Although he ended up beating Spassky with some kind with a similar style to sort of the Russian positionalist style uh, of chess playing. But um, well, he initially admired them very much. I mean, there was a bookstore that sold radical literature, communist literature, and they had Russian uh, chess magazines, which he found to be vastly superior to American chess magazines, and he had his his mother, who of course spoke fluent Russian, uh, translate the parts that he did not understand at the time. And so, when he had first gone to Russia in the fifties, he was uh, he was going there with great anticipation to meet and play with the grandmasters. And to a certain extent, it was result of a, it was a personal vendetta because of the way he was treated there. And then uh, later involved politics and uh, jury as well he i think the quote is something to the effect of uh, bolshevism is just a mask for judaism he said that in at the 92 game but yeah he, i think that to, to a large extent he uh he, he was a like a, an american patriot which was sort of which is uh peculiar especially now when you regard chess and you regard a lot of these um, sort of complex, sophisticated sports, let's call them, uh, you know, the, the image or the stereotype, or even if you have any experience with the people who are involved with them, 
uh, is is are people that have nothing to do with patriotism that don't care about it. It's just you know the United States is just an avenue for them to expand their their personal wealth or their their ego or their fame or their profession. They didn't see it as a as a uniquely patriotic duty to win for their for their country the way that he repeatedly said that he felt he had to do that mostly what motivated him was taking home the gold for the United States was winning for the United States yeah in in 72 of course right. later he became disillusioned with the United States right yeah that's, this is true my basic thesis is that the Jews are criminal people and the Jews completely control the United States and the Jews are using the United States as a vehicle to take over the world yeah uh, I mean this is here's another good one too. Let me throw this one in. Almost everyone who's been around me turned out to be a secret agent working for the Jews, working for the CIA. The Jews have planted so many of their Jew agents and CIA rats all around me. <laughs> so many people, girlfriends, lawyers, almost uh, everybody, almost turned out to be working for the CIA and the Jews. Unbelievable, but true. I mean, you can see where some of that would probably actually be true. And you're, and you're dealing with something like international sports. Exactly. I'm, I'm 100% sure that you do run into um, spooks at some level or there's there's some level of espionage going on. Um, there's there's definitely some level of subterfuge going on. You know, a lot of this was done. A lot of these events were done uh, particularly to create PR conditions for either side. You know, like at the, the, the Winter Olympics when um, Carter, I think I said earlier it was 72, it wasn't 72. The Winter Olympics when the Russians started going into Afghanistan and Carter basically uh, almost cucked and he was like, you know, we're not going to go to the Olympics. We're not going to go to Oslo. We're not, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to play the Soviets if they invade Afghanistan. Um, eventually you know they, they did go you know he eventually turned turned around at the last minute and i'm sure just 100 percent, given the, the high level of soviet officials who went to the games and the high level of american officials who went to the game or the games you know that there were spies involved because we were looking at the beginnings of another major soviet conflict in, in afghanistan so I'm sure that there were spooks there, and I'm sure athletes were running into spooks, knowingly or unknowingly, or government officials or military guys, and who knows what you know who you run into in these these circles and who you meet or you're introduced to. And it's Bobby, also Bobby Fischer was like was meeting high level U.S. government officials and high level Soviet officials because of what he was involved in doing. Yes, exactly. I mean, he didn't, he didn't want to. I don't think he wanted to or he cared to. But you do meet these people and you do have contact with them. He and, would say, I just want to play chess. Right. <laughs> but it, it, you have to keep in mind, too, that it's lonely at the top, right? This is a guy with 180 IQ. And most of the people, the people who he was most comfortable talking to and the people who he could talk to for hours were people who could seriously talk chess. Right. Uh, Lombardy. Was he friend with uh, like Jane Goodall or somebody like that? Uh, he he had a friendship with some fairly famous uh, lady of that caliber, and um, yeah, I, I I'd have to look that up. But that was an example. He had a of lot of he would famous admirers like uh, Marcel Duchamp was a big admirer of his, but I think he lived by him too uh, when he was younger. But he. 
he could talk to people who could talk chess and he could talk to them about chess for hours and other people like his the who's a Lombardi was a very competent chess player himself grandmaster very high, highly rated uh, he he ended up being his second in 72 and was a lifelong or at least for a while the, the relationship did eventually sour but he was he was a friend of his and those are the people who he could talk to. Everyone else, they wanted something from him, right? They wanted to use him for their political ends, or they wanted to use him for their financial ends, you know. Or they want, you know, they wanted to, the, the internal machinations of American chess politics itself, which, like as I mentioned before, is heavily Jewish, and so he made a lot of enemies there when he would say things like. Uh, Oh, geez, what was it? It's, oh, you'd say things like, they persecute me because I beat the Jews in chess. I beat them badly, too. I beat them very badly. Plus, on top of that, I exposed them as cheating in chess, as outright crooks. Plus, I exposed the Holocaust as never having happened. Totally made up. The Jews are liars. There's not a shred of truth to this Holocaust. <laughs> I love his, his writing style. It's just... <laughs> You know, was, plus was, I expose the Holocaust is not yeah. it. I mean, does he have a style? I mean, it's just like trash talk. That's I mean, that's amazing. why he's so funny. I mean, uh, yeah. he's, he's just kind of this uh, street brawler. The best was when he was living in Belgrade in like the 90s and yeah. he had, he had agreed to an, to an interview and they like, it was the first interview he had uh, volunteered to do since since the 92 game. And at first he's just like answering some questions about chess and then he just starts ripping into the Jews. <laughs> so <laughs> and they, they just don't know how to handle this. Like Actually, after, I think it was in the early 2000s. After, uh, after the, basically the fall of the Soviet Union, he was still very popular in uh, the Philippines and in multiple uh, former Eastern Bloc countries. Very popular in Hungary because he lived there for some time. He loved He's, the Philippines. He, he, it he, was the one place he uh, he got all these offers after 72 to do this, that, and the other for money. The only thing he accepted was to visit the Philippines. And he, pl he played a ceremonial mock game with Marcos, and he hung out there for a little while. And so he always had a great affection for the Philippines. He, and he was very popular in Poland and Hungary and in Russia. He was very popular in Romania. And... Uh, he, I think, at one point he, he lived in Hungary for for a while. I mean, he oh, lived yeah. there for several years, um, which is curious given who's alleged to be his biological father. His biological father, you know, there's this there's this drama about who was Bobby Fischer's real father, and that his his real father might have been a Hungarian Jew, um, who made it to the United States at some point and might have been involved in communist activity, like you know his mother was or something like that. Um, but anyways, you know, he spent several of his years in, in the country and he went to, uh, I think before he, before all that happened, he basically got arrested in Pasadena. He was in Southern California for some reason. And he got arrested on suspicion of being a bank robber. Yeah. There was a bank robber that had happened because Bobby was, he would take these very long walks and he right. was just walking around Pasadena for hours and then they accosted him and. 
Uh, brutalized him as California pigs are known to do. Did they know who he and was, or he just matched? The no, description? they didn't know I mean, who he was. He had was. this extremely disheveled look at a certain point in his life. I'm yeah, wondering if that was yeah. part of it. Yeah, this, he they did like not know who he was. was. And he and, wrote a like a Henry David Thoreau style, uh, like eight, eighty-five thousand word or eighty-five hundred. Tortured in the Pasadena jail. Yeah, yeah I was tortured in the Pasadena jail. <laughs> It was like a and Johnny then, Cash song. <laughs> and, and then in, in, in 1992, um, basically, at, in the 90s, he, he, uh, when the affection for him in, in the former Eastern Bloc grew, um, he had a number of flings with sort of young uh, female chess pro- prodigies. You know, yeah, well, Zeta in particular. So, yeah. like, he got one day, he got this, because he would just refuse mail. Like, he, it was very hard to get in touch with him. And he got this this letter that had this uh, said i would like to sell you a vacuum cleaner and it had this hand drawing of a vacuum cleaner and <laughs> he, he goes to the next page and it's the 17 year old hungarian girl who's just absolutely fascinated by him she's a she's a chess player herself and uh yeah he ends up uh he ends up obsessively in love with her at a later point she she was his girlfriend for a while but she ends up leaving him and uh, while she was still ostensibly with him she had a child with another man etc and oh god it got to the point though where because like he to adam's thing about his narcissism i thought one of the funniest things about his life is just that he as he got older he became obsessed with wanting to pass on his his uh genius you know he wanted a child he wanted an a descendant and he wanted an heir and so he actually asked Zita like asked Zita to ta- ask if her sister is available for this <laughs> purpose <laughs> and at some point he ends up enlisting like wh- whoever was his sort of pseudo agent in Eastern Europe at the time who handled various things for him he gave him these list of demands for essentially a, a breeder and it was like, okay, she must be blonde and blue-eyed. She must be very good-looking, and she must be good at chess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pick two. <laughs> they don't go Jesus together. <laughs> oh, and did young. you? And young, I mean, too, of course. Ba- basically, uh, in 1992, you're talking about he was living in Belgrade. So he basically gets seduced by a, a mixture of a Romanian, a young Romanian girl. And some kind of like Yugoslav oligarch or or warlord or something, and they convinced him to to have a, a rematch with uh, with Boris Bashki. And um, oh well, no, it was Zita. Zita is the one who. Oh, actually, so it was Zita. Okay, it was okay. Zita. Zita actually is the one who who helped to arrange. Okay, I thought rematch. it was a different girl. I think yeah, he, had, no, he had a number of like flings with with Warsaw yeah, Pact. There were there are a few because when he was younger, he was not interested in the uh, in the pussy. <laughs> like and he got to like i think he was because he was 28 in 72 um say what i just said they're distracting as hell oh yeah yeah those those his thoughts uh but after that after he had become the world champion it's like check that off box it's like he turns his attention to women and there's some quote to the effect it's like it's like i need to be surrounded by voluptuous women and they need to have large breasts <laughs> 
<laughs> there were a couple like things to this start. Like there was a woman. I mean, after he died, there was some. He died with about two million dollars, and he had no formal heir. And there was this woman who was a Japanese organizer in the in Japanese chess scene, who claimed that they had been married in two thousand four. Uh, she not produced any significant proof of this. Well, she as was. Far as she was in his presence, though. I've seen them together, if I recall correctly. No, there's no. It's not that she just made up any association, but the claim that they had actually been married in 2004 is dubious. Yeah, what does it matter? Well, yeah, two million dollars is what it matters. Oh, when he okay. went to he went and played this game in this rematch against Boschke, I think he he won, and he he won. He came away with three and a half million dollars in in money, but because of. Uh, Basically, the the series of civil wars in Yugoslavia started the year prior. The main, the really nasty stuff started in '91, and um, the whole country or the whole region was effectively under sanction. It was under like a no-fly zone. You couldn't even legally travel there if you were a U.S. citizen. So the U.S. government sanctioned him and tried to take his his prize winnings. Because yes. he, had, he had traveled there illegally. And so this this created this sort of 15-year-long drama where he was on the run from the U.S. government before he, he made it to Iceland. He had also refused to pay taxes to the right. U.S. government since, like, right. the late 70s. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's good stuff. Here's from the—here's this—here's the hysteria from the New York Times, actually, from when that happened. Uh, think of Bosnia overrun by Serbian-backed militias. Then think of the chess genius Bobby Fischer violating United Nations sanctions and decency itself to play a chess match for profit in Serbia against his old rival Boris Spassky. Decency con- itself? Say what? Yeah, against exactly God. against decency itself. <laughs> Meanwhile, to move, they're just they're slaughtering plastic on they're, a, they're a slaughtering Serbs square. and they're whining about yeah. decency. Uh, it's it's too much. The contrast reeks of callousness. Not to mention disregard for international law, which was, of course, the Yugoslav wars were a violation of. So there you go. The the match also violates President Bush's executive order forbidding Americans to do business in Yugoslavia. It's it's a funny one. Uh, these people that you just you can't win with these people. But yeah, Iceland eventually offered him citizenship. Uh, they. Uh, they got him in 2004. They they got him over there, offered him asylum and then citizenship, and he lived out his days there. And so apparently, when he, when he got there, they had a press conference, and I'm sure you've all seen it. But that's when uh, that that kid confronted him, and apparently, his father uh, and Fisher had known each other. And Nick, do you want to carry on the story, unless you're not familiar? Um, oh, you're talking about that. Uh, the the one who hysterically storms out to make a scene it's it's just like theater shit that he's doing. Well, I'd recommend anybody who hasn't seen Bobby Fischer's stuff uh, watch that one in particular because he's basically um, you could see his his frustrations and insecurities and anger and and opinions all on display in that press conference because this guy he's kind of. It's quite strange. I mean, that he knew his father knew Bobby Fisher, and apparently yep. they had some disagreement. And Bobby Fisher has granted citizenship in Iceland against you know U.S. sanctions or whatever. And 
this this guy he flies to Iceland to heckle him. I mean, it's like what, what is he your flies, problem, dude? It's like it's just mercenary bullshit. He did, he made like a documentary for cable TV about it. That was the, it was just theater. Yeah, and he was exp- yeah, it's just typical Jew shit. And well, that's what one of my Fisher fav- said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right exactly. at the press conference, yeah. which was so uh, jarring to you know American ears because yeah, it's a taboo subject. Obviously, Those sensitive American ears don't say anything about their the precious Jew. But did you uh, guys ever hear what he said about Kasparov? Oh, which he said a couple. Well, first of all, he when he talked about Kasparov, he liked to remind people of Kasparov's last name is actually Weinstein. So hold on, this is this is a quote. He, uh, I want to say this before because you guys are talking about some of the more uh, insensitive things he would say, and he got he would get in trouble for this kind of stuff. But he said, uh, "I object to being called a chess genius because I consider myself to be an all-around genius who just happens to play chess." which is rather different. A piece of garbage like Kasparov might be called a chess genius, but he's like an idiot savant. Outside of chess, he knows nothing. That's, that's very accurate, too. Well, he, he also to uh, set up a political party in opposition against the Russian government. I'm wondering if he did that alone. But uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he did it alone, along with Pussy Riot operating alone. He actually uh, did something on behalf of Pussy Riot. So... I... <laughs> I mean, it's just like huge red flag. He's, he's <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely bet solid money. He's a, a company asset at this point. Oh, Casper. He has a Twitter, too. I mean, it's. <laughs> he has a blue, blue check. Blue checker, literally. Yeah. Blue checker chess. Yeah. I could imagine. It would be nice to see, like, Bobby Fischer complaining that, like, the Jews took away his blue check. <laughs> I, I was wondering that today, too. I was like, what Did if Bobby, Bobby Fischer, Fischer is still alive? Like, what would he say? About APAC or whatever, <laughs> whatever. What would you say about Trump? You'd be like, you'd be screaming and in, into oh, some uh, Filipino radio show that oh, that giant, that giant blonde Jew in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's you would have exactly so many followers on Twitter. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> yeah, can dude, it's it's surreal. Like the day after 9/11, he called into some Hungarian random hungarian radio show and they're asking him about chess and then out of the blue he just changed that was that was a philippine radio oh okay he would basically he would either either was filipino or hungarian radio or he'd just say insane shit it was was the 9-11 one that was yeah the 9-11 he was talking to a filipino grandmaster and yeah he was just he was just talking about how the united states is instrument for world jewelry and they deserve 911 oh and that there should, there needs to be like a military coup in the united states and all yeah. the jews need to be rounded <laughs> up and well well then and he was like that every yeah every jew should be executed every synagogue should be burned down mm-hmm. by the military yeah <laughs> he also said he also said that the whites should go back to europe and uh, the native americans should reclaim north america yeah it should be said um he was not a like he just he hated white the Jews. No, he's not. A he white hated the Jews, no. and he thought that the Jews had ruined chess. <laughs> really, is what it comes down to. <laughs> like this is above all where his opinion uh, on them comes from. Is he, he thought that they they had ruined the game, uh, and he was not a, a racist. I mean, in fact, he he started reading like he started with the protocols, and he started reading Ben Klassen as well. And he, although he liked Ben Klassen's work, uh, he thought that it was too racist. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> he was never he was never a racist uh, in the sort of conventional sense. Well, and it because begs the also question, he would not what, say that it was a racial that the Jews were a racial problem either, which is it's he it's in a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, why yes. why did he get into the anti Judaism stuff? I mean, it's well, he wanted to educate himself. You see, he was very you talking about his insecurities. Yeah. He wasn't really very formally educated. He wasn't uh, uneducated. He he had read, but he he dropped out of school. Um, high school. And he was always a little bit sensitive of this. So there were a few things that after he won that he wanted to do. Uh, he wanted to bang a bunch of women, and he wanted to learn about more about the world and read more books. And he just started reading, and one thing led to another, and he was, uh, you know, checking out Mein Kampf. Right. He was fond of, he quoted, that was one of the things he quoted in the, uh, uh, when he did that, the interview in Belgrade, was... He quoted from Mein Kampf saying that, you know, as, as Adolf Hitler said, the Jews are not uh, victims, they are victimizers. I mean, who who is the Bobby Fischer of the modern era? Is well, there, who's there... the best chess player? It's, it is Magnus Carlsen. Carlsen. Yeah. Or who Who is sort of the, the most polemical or polemicist-styled uh Chess player. Ironically, the, the chess player with the most opinions who's alive today is unfortunately Gasparov. Gary Gasparov. Yeah. You know? God. I mean, I was going to say Dennis. He is, he is the anti-Fisher, and he he yeah. also grandstanded in a very whereas Spassky's attitude towards Fisher uh, after his death was was very honorable. Uh, I mean, he, I think he is deferential too. I think he knew that Fisher was the best and. Uh, and you can respect a, a player who is respectful of others who are truly more capable than they are. I mean, that, that's a person who truly appreciates the craft more than their own ego. And I probably couldn't say that about Fisher, to be honest. I mean, I, I would be, it'd be very interesting to see him play some of the other people in his throughout history in chess. Uh, I don't know who the best is. I'm not no, a it's... scholar on this, but it, it. I think his his sort of deferential treatment of Fisher was probably why we. We look on him a little bit kindly, um, and, and not to say that he he didn't deserve it, but um, it's all. It's well, all he I didn't necessarily. Say. I mean, by the time he played in '72, uh, he he felt that he could he could take Spassky, but prior to that, he he felt that Spassky was the stronger player. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and he, as far as people throughout history, I mentioned Paul Murphy earlier. Uh, he actually believed that it was. Um, Another parallel, because he, he would say what something he was frequently say is that it was the Jews who were preventing him from playing chess. Because the most common question he got asked was why he didn't play anymore. And that, by the way, was Zita when Zita first wrote to him. That was her the question she wanted most to know. And apparently, what happened was like so he took him. She got this. He gets this letter from the seventeen-year-old Hungarian girl, and takes takes a little bit to to follow up on it. But he ends up calling her. Uh, and so her parents answered the phone and they put Bobby Fisher on the phone for the 17 year old girl. And he talks to her for quite a while. And then he just starts, he, he's like making sure that she's not a Jew and starts just, you know, again, laying into the Jews. And she wasn't interested in this. So he hung up and then blew her off for a while. <laughs> the other good one was there's some, some Jew, uh, 
was going to get into a car, a cab with him or something, and he refused to let the Jew into the cab until the Jew admitted the Holocaust was a hoax. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's like you see this sort of behavior throughout his his life. I mean, he's very particular and very controlling, frankly, of, of every goddamn detail. And you could probably see how that's correlated to somebody who's a genius on something like chess where you see all the details and you have to be able mm-hmm. to have them mm-hmm. yep. in a framework that makes the most sense to you logically. But it, it's also a a torturous psychological trait because you can't control everything and if you try to you're going to alienate everybody around you and that's what happened yeah that's that is accurate i would i would agree with that uh, largely i think i think that you also asked why it was that he got into uh, that the politics sort of stuff is yeah. i think that that was it he wanted to better under because i i think he it started to dawn on him afterwards that he was being used Oh, of course he was. And he wanted to know who these pe- who who was behind this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's well shit. Apparently Kissinger's got his number, so ask him. Uh that would have been an interesting yeah. fly on the wall situation. But um you know, some of his theories about uh, you know, the CIA this and the Jews that I I think he was speculating, but and, and I've listened to a lot of his stuff and He's saying stuff that at this point, you know, guys on the internet have, have all heard. Uh, it's hard to know how truly insightful he was or just the fact that he was not tolerant of any bullshit. And so he just he said what he, he was reading and he saw in evidence, uh, whether he was actually uncovering original information like a David Irving or somebody like that. I am somewhat skeptical of. But um, well, no his, one's making that claim. He's just a guy. who Right, right. He's a brilliant man, and he had opinions. Mm-hmm. And because he was a world-known figure, his opinions created a serious problem for sure. him. Sure, sure, of course. I shouldn't just say opinions. I mean, he, he stated simple facts. Uh, for example, when he says something to the effect of America is totally under the control of the Jews, you know, I mean, look what they're doing in Yugoslavia. The Secretary of State, that was Madeleine Albright, yep. and the Secretary of Defense, uh, William Cohen, are dirty Jews. Fact check, true. I mean, that whole war, it, it just, it was odd. I mean, like the, this, this pissant little country, Serbia, is apparently the new Nazi Germany. But I guess the, the notion, I mean, Wesley Clark literally said this. It's like the also, notion yeah. of nations is, is a 20th century, or it's, a, it's a dead thing from the, the prior to the Second World War. And we will not allow that anymore. Is basically the only explanation I can give for that. I, I don't understand why they would have this obsession with this little country, but apparently it's enough to piss people off. I mean, I think it's more complicated. Also, I think it was also the the Soviet Union was in disarray, and so this is the United States' chance to show it was boss. I think that's yep. part of it. Yeah, you also really have to wonder yeah. what the world of chess would have looked like if it wasn't for the American and uh, Soviet war against Germany. Because they basically knocked out of the fields, and so you have the, the final contest. I mean, after the Soviets dominated it for 20-some 20, 20 years, um, you had Bobby Fischer come up to challenge them. But mm-hmm. you wonder what what international chess could have been 
what what chess masters might have emerged? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I have noticed that the the chess players are usually these kind of um, well, obviously a lot of Russians and uh, people who are from Russia, uh, but uh, and Americans. But those are two big countries, and so you know the law of it's not technically correct, but colloquially speaking, a lot of people will say this: the law of large numbers will indicate that there's, you know, more chances for really intelligent people to, to come up. Um, but then you'd expect that, you know, from China or India, maybe culturally they never really got into that particular game. Um, well, India did did have uh, they did yeah this one uh, Anand. Who yeah, was that was the, uh, like ten years ago, maybe. But uh, yeah, he was the one defeated by Magnus. Right. Right. But yeah, continental Europe hasn't produced a tremendous number in the past uh, few decades, and so that's always kind of struck out, stuck mm-hmm. out to me is is quite yeah. inter- interesting. Yeah, yeah. The last um, you had a there was an Italian oh, was guy U A years ago, uh, um, Max U A, in the thirties, was the world champion from the Netherlands. But that's yeah, that's the last one. I mean, but now you have you have you have Magnus right. from Norway. Yeah, I haven't followed him. I mean, I remember he was big uh, in the press at least, maybe five six years ago, when he was hanging out with George Soros. But I don't know what he's been up to lately. Is he still the champion? Yeah, he is. But it is interesting. I mean, it does. Big, it was like, what is it with these with the international jury and and having to get their claws on. Chess is something very important to these people. It's it's interesting. Well, it's not surprising. I mean, they pride themselves on being the most intelligent people. And so I think they gravitate towards anyone who's capable at that game and they want to figure them out. Mm. Mm. I think that part of it probably has to do with a large extent with the fact that chess can be mostly cultivated. We were talking about this a little bit earlier that obviously... The reason, part of the reason why Fisher won is he was just smarter. He was just a more intelligent human being than a lot of these guys he played. Um, but chess, to an, to a, to a large extent, is something you can cultivate. It's a, it's mostly skill based. It's um, mostly a a matter of learning as many possible moves and memorizing, um, and you know, sort of uh, contingencies for any possible situation. At its core, it's difficult to reduce chess too much, but at its core, chess is very much a game theory-based set of plays. And you can utilize just really sort of uh, simple heuristics in your head to beat most scenarios, assuming you're playing against someone that might be just slightly less smart than you are. So you can imagine how Ashkenazi Jews can get really involved in, in, a, in this sort of sophisticated sport that requires large amounts of, uh, of um, acculturation, large amounts of, actually large amounts of financing, because it's difficult to hold down in not sort of nine to five and be a, a chess champion. You have to spend most of your day every day um, plotting out chess moves or just playing chess against people, playing chess against a computer, you know, reading about different chess moves, reading about the history of chess, whatever it is you have to do in order to, to gain a leg up. Uh, you can see why, again, it's popular in this community. Um, and honestly, uh, I think that 
when you're looking at, at some kind of recreational activity or sport that doesn't involve any physical activity, well, you can't pick one better. You know, what sport has as much international prestige and, and so little amount of physical activity? Well, chess. It's funny you mention that because this has been brought up by mul- multiple people in this documentary I watched on The Fisher's Life about how physically demanding chess is. And I always was scratching my head at that. I think what they're referring to, though, was the fact that if you're playing 24 games in a row, you have to sit in a chair uh, and yeah, the same not way that concentration. Golf, golf, I mean, we regard golf as, as, as sort of a boring sport. Golf can have a um, deteriorating effect on your spine. It can basically erode the discs in your back. It can have um, really bad effects long-term on your hip. Uh, it can totally disintegrate your tailbone. It can ruin your kneecaps. You can ruin your ankles. Golf is really not very much of an involved sport, but if you are swinging your body as hard as you can sometimes 300, 400 times a day with a driver just practicing, uh, and if you're locking your back and locking your hips the way you're supposed to with golf and only twisting them at the end, you can see how that will wear down your spine. Like uh, Tiger Woods is probably the most high-profile guy, but several uh professional golfers have major back problems and have to get spinal fusion surgery just to be able to walk properly again. And mind, mind and body are not separate. So, right. You know, so for, the, the, there are sports to, be able to maintain maximum concentration and to, to operate at the highest level, you need to be in good physical condition. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. But there are sports, you know, especially like chess that are very much not physical sports. They are sports mostly of sophistication they, and, they and, can be played with no physical effort. However, right, any right, chess right, right. player's game would improve if they were in better physical condition. Of, of course, yeah. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not disputing that, but you can see why sort of the the meme of of the pimpled, goofy Jewish kid being really good at chess probably has a, a good amount of just heuristic truth to it. Because again, it's a sport that requires huge amounts of time investment, huge amounts of acculturation, huge amounts of um, discretionary funding, uh, sort of a general cultural attitude, I would say, that's a little bit different from, from acculturation towards something as uh, uh, sophisticated and requ- requiring of as much commitment as chess will require of you in order to be any good at it. Which is funny because Bobby Fischer himself broke the mold on on all of right. his counts. Yeah, and Fisher, he was both very poor, um, in very good physical condition, a de- dedicated swimmer and tennis player, later a weightlifter actually, and he also uh, hated the Jews. Yeah, I mean, Fisher was sort of one of these weird figures that uh, it rises, and he was, he was almost an artist. Oh yeah, absolutely. Playing chess, you know, Studies he was games. not. He was not a professional chess player in a lot of ways. He was not. Uh, he was not trained from a young age. He didn't come from a chess playing championship based family. You know, he wasn't selected through a series of aptitude tests you know, to gauge how good he would be at chess. He sort of just found it a, a sort of a, a, an interesting pastime, as he would later say. He became very committed to it, but he found it as an interesting pastime and developed. Through mostly his own will, with very I think would say very little coaching, mostly through his own reading, 
um, and his own observation of chess players that he would come into contact with. That was how he taught himself to be good at chess. But the majority of you know good chess players are, are people that have lots of discretionary funding, um, have a, a general familial uh, commitment, or in, in most cases, a governmental commitment to their their betterment as a, as a chess player. The noble game. Anybody seen a knight pass this way? I saw him playing chess with death yesterday. His crusade was a search for God, and they say it's been a long way to carry Anybody here of plague in this town? The town I've left behind was burned to the ground. A young girl on a stake, her face framed in flames, cried, I'm not a witch, God knows my name. The night he watched with fear, he needed to know He ran where he might feel God's breath And in the misty church He knelt to confess The face within the booth Was Mr. Death My life's a vain pursuit of meaningless miles. Why can't God touch me with a sign? Perhaps there's no one there and at the booth and death hid within his cloak and smile. This morning I played chess with death, said the night. We played that he might grant me time. My bishop and my knights will shatter his flanks. And still I might feel God's heart in mine. And through confession's grill, death's laughter was heard. The night cried, No. You cheated me But still I'll find a way We'll meet once again And once again Continue to play They met within the woods The night his squire and friend Death said now, the game shall end The final move was made The night 
head and said, you've won, I've nothing left to play. The minstrel filled with visions sang to his love to look against the stormy sky. The night his squire and friends their hands held as one solemnly danced towards the dawn. His hourglass in his hand his side by his side the master death he leaves them all 